Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have been uh, spending time engaging in prayer. Uh, Lord, we pray because it helps us realize that you're with us. It helps us come to an awareness that wherever we go, you're with us. Helps us to just connect our soul and our spirit to our body, to our thinking. Lord, we are whole beings. Everywhere we go, we take all of us everywhere that we go. God, we don't want to try and forget our week. We don't want to try and um, separate ourselves from it. We are bringing it here into this space, into this place. We're bringing it as we listen to a message on Job. We're bringing it as we have a cup of tea afterwards. God, we are complete whole beings and we invite you into all of our life. We invite you into our week. We invite you into the struggles we've had with our children. We invite you into the struggles we've had at work. We invite you into the struggles we've had with our friendships to our disappointments, to that moment or those moments this week when somebody hurt us or maybe where we hurt somebody else, where we felt threatened, where we felt under pressure, where we hid, Lord, where we threw someone else under a bus to try and protect ourselves. All of that makes up our week and we invite you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, into all of it. And we sit here as complete beings knowing that we are accepted, loved, and inspired and challenged to more and better. God, as we open the book of Job, as we crack open the oldest book of the Bible, would you uh, help us learn, help us see from a book that was written thousands of years ago, a book of wisdom, would you teach us in 2018 in Perth, in Western Australia. Make your wisdom known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Job, we're breaking the book of Job up into 10 chapter lots. So last week was the first, chap, uh, the first lot, and this week we're looking at chapters 10 through 20. And that slide didn't turn out the way I hoped that it would. <laughs> anyway, that's a revision slide. Uh, and what it's doing is it's just setting up a little bit about last week. I can just talk you through. Last week, we, we set up the book of Job as a wisdom book. And it, it needs to be read as a wisdom book. It's a book that is not a science textbook. It's not a book that tells us specific truths. It's a book that conveys to us the wisdom of God about suffering, the wisdom of God about this man Job and what it was that he encountered and what it is that we can encounter as we go through life. So we have to read Job as a wisdom book, as an overarching textbook. They believe that there was a man named Job. They believe that he did suffer, but some of the specifics are literary tools. They're tools that the writer uses to convey truth to us. Okay, so that's how we have to read the book of Job. We have to understand that Job isn't on trial. Job goes through trials. So he's not on trial. He goes through trials. But God is on trial because there was a conversation in heaven between God and the challenger. The Bible calls him Satan. We know him as the challenger. And in this context, the challenger, as the people were reading it in the day, is not evil. We can kind of look with New Testament eyes and see that the traits of the challenger in the New Testament become a lot more sinister. So we can see those things here. But for the people of the day in the time, the challenger is just a character in the story. And the challenger in the story was brought by God to bring about a different perspective and a different point of view. So the challenger says to God, Job only loves you and humans only love you and they're only good and they're only righteous because they're number one, they're scared of you 
And number two, because when they're good, you bless them. You look after them. You increase their flocks. You give them long life. And God says, that's not true, challenger. That's not true. People will love me because they love me. People will be righteous because they want to be. The challenger says, that's not true. And God says to the challenger, what about Job? He's a good man. The challenger said, he's only good. He only loves you because he's frightened of you and because you've made him wealthy. And God says, let's put it to the test. And that is the underpinning. That is the engine. That is the push. That is the question that's being asked and answered again and again and again all the way through the book of Job. Job is just a test case. Job really doesn't know about this conversation in heaven. He doesn't know about this underpinning. All he knows is his life was really good and now it's really rubbish. It's really rubbish and it's really hard. But he does not know what's going on in heaven. That's the underpinning of this book. We've got our first reading. Um, Someone's going to help me read. His name is Ross. He's going to get his microphone ready. If we can flick to the next slide, I don't know what's going on there. We're having a look at Job chapter 10. If you have your Bible or your phone or your tablet, please feel free to have a look. It's going to be read out to us now by Ross. Take it away. This is Job speaking, by the way. Okay. Uh, Job 10, 1 to 12 from the NIV. I loathe my very life. Therefore... I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppose me, to spurn the work of your hand while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as mortals see? Are your days like those of mortals? or your years like those of a strong man, that you must search out my fault and probe after my sin. Though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand, your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you moulded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk? And curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinew. You gave me life and showed me kindness, and in your providence watched over my spirit. So, this is Job speaking about his situation, about his pain, and about his anguish. Verse 7 tells us Job says, Though you know that I am not guilty. Job says to God, I've not done anything wrong. I've not done anything wrong. Yet we have this questioning. What is going on? What have I done wrong? I know in myself, I know in my heart that I haven't sinned, that I haven't been blasphemous, that I haven't done any of these things that the the wisdom or the knowing of the day said would bring the wrath the anger of the gods. Job says, I've not done any of these things. Yet I'm going through all this pain. I'm going through all this struggle. I'm going through all of this oppression. He wants to know desperately that he hasn't done anything wrong. He wants God to know that. He's speaking about that. 
And then we see as that chapter comes on, verse 8 and 9 and 10, we see that Job says, don't you remember, God, I'm going through all this terrible stuff. You're pouring me out like cheese and I'm curdling and, and milk and bleh, there's nothing left. I'm all done. I'm all gone. We know that there's 30 more chapters of pain ahead for Job. But as he stands there, he says, don't forget, God, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You've heard that text before Job is reminding God. We see this take place with Moses as well. As Moses is going to kill everybody. Uh, sorry, as God is going to destroy these people who have rebelled against him and he's angry. Moses petitions God and says, Don't forget, God, you're a good God. Don't forget that you're a gracious God, that you're a kind God, that you're, you're quick to grace. And then we have this moment where God goes, oh, yes, that's right, Moses. Thank you for reminding me that I am good, that I am gracious, that I am kind. And Moses kind of goes, I've saved all these people. We hear echoes of that. We hear that happening here. Job says, you're, you're pouring me out. I'm going through all this suffering. But don't forget, God, that you love me. Don't forget, God, that you're good. Don't forget that you made me in my mother's womb. Don't forget, God. Don't forget. Job wants to know why he's struggling, and understandably so. Understandably so. Verse 10, 15 says this, If I am guilty, let's read it together. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame. For I am full of shame. Job is now away from his family. He's now away from his home because of his skin condition. He's moved outside into the city dump, the place that, that Jesus spoke about as, as hell, this place, a city dump. Job is now sitting in the city dump. He's there and he's in ashes. He's cleaning his skin with a piece of broken pottery. He's in a, in a hair shirt. He's in sackcloth and ashes, like just uncomfortable. And he's got these people who have surrounded him now, his friends, these people who are coming to engage him, to argue with him. And he's sitting there and he just says, I'm just, if I am guilty, then woe is me. I know that I'm not, but if I am. And he speaks about being full of shame full of shame. So we think about guilt and shame and we often use these words interchangeably, but they are profoundly different. Guilt is associated with action. So if I come and steal your keys or, or, or sort of push you over or knock you over, I've done something to you. I'm guilty for that. And those actions cause me to feel this guilt. Guilt can be forgiven. If I return your wallet, if I give back what I've taken from you, then you can forgive me and my guilt is, is sort of settled and, and I walk away. The transaction has been done. That's guilt. Shame is very, very different. Guilt is about what I have done causes me pain and you pain. Shame is about who I believe myself to be. Uh, there's a, a lady called Brene Brown, and she's kind of the preeminent shame researcher at the moment. If you hop on TED Talks, she's got two TED Talks on shame. They're brilliant, really, really uh, easy to listen to and really uh, profound in terms of research and, and what I know to be true of shame as well, if you want to have a look. But shame is this idea. It's how we see ourselves. No actions can relieve us of our shame. Someone can't walk up to us and relieve us of our shame. It's not the way that it works. 
when we have shame deep in our soul, it is toxic, it's poisonous. Shame tells us that who we are is bad, that who we are is dangerous, that who I am, wherever I go, I'm going to bring this thing with me in every interaction, every relationship that I have. If you see this thing inside of me, you won't want me anymore. You won't want to be friends with me anymore. You won't want to be in relationship with me anymore. So if you have a self-view that is grounded in shame, when you try and engage in deep relationship, it's this terribly toxic thing. Because as you're drawn to another person and you want to become vulnerable with them and let them in and show them all what's going on inside of you, if you have shame, that is a fear. Because if they step inside and they see what's in there, we fear that they won't want us anymore. So with shame, we're always trying to engage, yet always pulling back for fear of someone seeing what is inside of us. Guilt and shame are very, very different. The New American Standard Bible, he doesn't, in that translation, they don't uh, translate this as being full of shame. He says, I am sated with disgrace because of my ministry. The New King James says disgrace as well. The New Living Translation says shame. And when we look in Hebrew, the actual Hebrew word is misery. Misery. I think misery is probably a far better translation than shame because we see here a little bit about what Job is experiencing. Yet he still believes that he's good. If he was uh, a man who had shame in his core, he would not be able to say that of himself because he wouldn't believe it to be true. But it captures the pain that is inside of him. Now we're going to have a look at one of Job's friends, and I say that in inverted commas, and one of his friends has listened to his speech, and his friend is now going to retort. He's going to speak back to him. And The friend that we're going to hear from is a man by the name of Zopar. Do you remember I spoke about the three friends all represent a way of thinking in the ancient Near East? Zopar is the the rationalist. He's the rational thinking. He relies on logic, systematizing of things. One plus one equals two. That's the way life functions. That's the way life works. And Zopar has come into contact with Job and he sees the suffering that he's going through. And Zopar tries to make sense of why it is that a man who was blessed, a man who was wealthy, is now sitting outside of the city in the dump with nothing. And we're going to hear what he has to say now. Let's go, Roscoe. Now it was the turn of Zophar from Namath. What a flood of words. Shouldn't we put a stop to it? Should this kind of loose talk be permitted? Job, do you think you can carry on like this and we'll say nothing? That will let you rail and mock and not step in? You claim my doctrine is sound. And my conduct impeccable. Now I wish God would give you a piece of his mind. Tell you what's what. I wish he'd show you how wisdom looks like from the inside. For true wisdom is mostly inside. But you can be sure of this. You haven't gotten half of what you deserve. That's nice of his friend to come along and say that to him, isn't it? I read that from the message. It's a bit easy to understand from the message. 
So Zophar is saying to him, Job, you are delusional. Here you are, this frumpy guy. You look in the mirror and you think you're Superman, but you're not. Because your life is telling you about the decisions that you've made. You've done something wrong, Job. You need to fall on your face. You need to repent. You need to say sorry to God. You keep saying you've not done anything wrong, but your life is a disaster which proves that you have done something wrong. Job, stop kidding yourself. Stop mocking yourself and just own up to the fact that you've done something wrong. Say sorry, because if you do, then you'll be reinstated. And if you're reinstated, what does he get back? He gets back. What does he get back? He gets everything and more, doesn't he? He gets all his stuff back. He gets all his money back. He gets all his things back. He gets his blessing back. Because at the end of the day, Zophar is trying to make sense of the world. And if he can't make sense of the world, where does that put him? It puts him in a place of vulnerability, doesn't it? Because Zophar doesn't want to think that things in life can just happen that we have very little control over. Zophar is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. One plus one equals two. Every time, every time. Let's see what happens next. Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 20. Still, if you set your heart on God and reach out to him, if you scrub your hands of sin and refuse to entertain evil in your home, you'll be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. You'll forget your troubles. They'll be like old faded photographs. That sounds like good advice, doesn't it? (laughs) Zopar says to him, Job, just say sorry. If you just say sorry then God will cleanse you. He will wash you clean. He will restore you. He will reinstate you. Now, that's, that's wisdom, isn't it? That sounds like truth. Amen? And it is. There's absolute truth in there. The problem is, Job hasn't done anything wrong. This would work if Job had of blasphemed. This would be fantastic advice if Job had of sinned in the way that they all think that he sinned. Because if Job turns around to God and says, I've done these terrible things, I've done these terrible... And he has it. He makes a mockery out of forgiveness, doesn't he? Because there is a whole lot going on in the heavenly realm that Job has no idea about. Zopar is trying to his very best to boil that down into a system to make sense of it. Because at the end of the day, he, like us, is trying to make life work. But Job is a story of what happens when we can't make life work let's have a look at the next one your world will be washed in sunshine every shadow dispersed by day spring full of hope you'll relax confident again you'll look around sit back and take it easy expansive without a care in the world You'll be hunted out by many for your blessing. But the wicked will see none of this. You're headed down a dead-end road with nothing to look forward to. Nothing. If Job really was a man who had experienced shame, if, if he was a man who had that root deep inside of him, it wouldn't matter how much he said sorry to God. It wouldn't matter how much he fell on his face and said, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. Because that root of shame would be deep within his soul. 
Now, when we think about shame, it's a, it's a weird and a strange thing. And, and people who have suffered, people who have been in abusive homes, people who have been sexually abused, people who have been seriously assaulted, we can start to believe that the reason we were chosen for abuse or the reason our parents mistreated us or the reason that I was really, really bullied at school extensively is because that person chose me for a reason. They saw something in me and that's why they chose to treat me that way. And that's how shame makes its way into our soul. It's not because of anything we've done. It's generally because of something someone else has done against us. And it sits in there. And every bad thing that happens to us and every bad thing that we do, we start to analyze through the lens of this shame. Um, something's wrong here. If, if, if I was a good person, then I wouldn't have been chosen for that. Then they wouldn't have bullied me. Then that person wouldn't have treated me that way. This advice that Zopar gives him is real wisdom there. But if he has got shame in his soul, it does not matter how much, doesn't matter how much he says sorry to God. It doesn't matter how much he puts himself on the floor. It will not fix him. So while there's some truth in this advice and not to be thrown out, it's a wisdom book, remember, there's truth here. It's not just a big blanket truth. We have to take things on their merit. We have to take things as they are. So what then do we do? Because sometimes things aren't so simple. Sometimes we don't just say, sorry God, please forgive me, and everything turns out the way that we want. Job is letting us know, it's teaching us from thousands of years ago that life is complex. Two things often aren't the same. One plus one sometimes equals four. Sometimes you can be living your life and there's something that goes on in the heavenly realms and then your life changes as a result. Sometimes you can be living your life and someone else makes a decision. Someone else sins. Someone else reacts and responds. And their choices bump into your choices. Their choices directly affect you. And there's very little that you can do about that. Sometimes there is a spiritual battle that goes on. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For we are in part subject to the principalities and powers, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are other things going on, and those other things affect our things. And we're not always in control of those things. Zophar's wisdom has truth, but there's more. So what do we do if we have that shame in our soul? What do we do if someone else's choices have affected us in a way that is painful and difficult? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It I'll, read, I'll read this one. I'll read this one. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. I love that phrase. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us, doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. 
Isn't that what the world tells us is freedom? Doing what we want to do when we feel like doing it? All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, what did God do? He embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive with Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in the company of Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in the world and next to a shower of grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all of his work. All we can do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. Oh, isn't that relieving in some way? We think about Zopar's advice and who's got to do all the work in Zopar's advice? Job has to do all the work, doesn't he? Job's the one. Get on your face. And there are times when we need to do that. There are times when we need to take stock, look at our life and say, bad things are happening. Am I making stupid decisions? Am I letting my desires unchecked make my decisions for me? Am I spending more money than I have? Am I spending more time than I have to give? Am I not putting things where they need to go? Am I not focusing on my marriage or my friendships or my children? If I do those things, bad things will happen. We need to take stock of that. But there's a whole other realm of things that take place that we have very little control over. Paul's telling us that in all things, we don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done this whole thing. Wouldn't do that, would you? No, me either. No! We'd neither make ourselves slaves. God does both the making and the saving. He created each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better get doing. So what does he say? There are some things we can do. We can save ourselves in some ways. And then in other ways, we can't save ourselves and we need Jesus. What is wisdom? Wisdom is being able to discern. Is this one of these scenarios I can save myself in? Or is this one of these scenarios that I can't do anything except call on the name of God? And wisdom is being able to discern which one of these scenarios life finds me in. Does that make sense? Does that sound like wisdom? Job is brilliant. Job is brilliant. So in order for us to be able to live as best as we can, to live good lives, to discern whether or not I'm in a painful situation by my own hand, by my own doing. Have I made stupid decisions? Have I made foolish decisions? Have I trusted unwise people? Am I doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it? If we are, there are times when that's okay. There are times when that leads to foolish outcomes, painful outcomes for you and your, you and your people. And then there are other times when other people's choices, when spiritual choices take place, when evil enters into our story, where we, it wouldn't matter how much we repented, we're stuck. And in those instances, it's time for us to call on the name of God because only He can save us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, Job is a book of brilliant wisdom, written thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's still something that brings about truth in 2018. 
God, would you help us discern? Would you help us know? Would you give us the wisdom to be able to work out when we're in painful situations because of our own choices, because of following our own desires? Would you give us the strength of character and the courage to be able to make appropriate decisions to make better, to make better outcomes, to make better decisions? And God, would you give us the ability to know when we are in waters that aren't of our own making? Would you give us the ability to know that there is something of shame that's going on here? There's something of spiritual uh, attack that's going on here. There's something that is going on here that's other people's choices that I don't have much control over. But I need you, Jesus. I need your hope. I need your restoration. I need you to put your hands down on me and, and heal me. Be present with me. Love me while I'm in the city dump scraping my broken skin because of something that's going on that's not my fault. God, give us the capacity. Give us the uh, intelligence. Give us the awareness to be able to know, am I in a painful situation of my own doing or is this someone else's doing? Give us the, the ability, the wisdom to be able to know what to do in the situation that we find ourselves in. God, you're good and you love us. And you want us to engage in this world. You want us to engage with each other. You want, to bring, you want us to bring you wherever it is that we go. Go with us on this journey, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.